0: Good evening. Good evening. Thank you all for coming to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Vice President of External Relations here at CSIS. And have the pleasure of uh, hosting the Schieffer Series with Bob Schieffer and the Texas Christian University TCU uh, School of Journalism. I'd like to acknowledge some of our colleagues from TCU who made it up here from Fort Worth. Um, And we're really looking forward to this terrific panel tonight. I also have the pleasure of announcing that tonight uh, from here, here on, we have a great company. United Technologies has uh, agreed to uh, sponsor this series going forward. And you may know United Technologies, uh, they're a diversified company that uh, makes elevators, Otis elevators and escalators, um, uh, Sikorsky Aircraft, all these kinds of things, and we're, we're just so lucky to have them on board to help this series continue to be great and, and to be able to host you all. And with that, I'd like to throw it over to Bob. and. Let let everybody get started. All right.
1: I would like to uh, uh, tell you that we do have the the first team from TCU here today. Uh, And I'll just introduce them as they're seated here. John Lumpkin uh, is the new director of the Schieffer School. Hold your applause till the end. Victor Bacchini (laughs) is the uh, new uh, – he's not new. He's been there. He is our esteemed chancellor of Texas Christian University. That's Bonnie Melhart, who is the associate uh, provost. Uh, There's Noel Donovan, who is the provost of the university. Uh, there's, uh, I often introduce as the cute little blonde, Pat Sheeper, who is the trustee <laughs> of TCU. She's right there. <laughs> and sitting next to Pat is Daria Fediva, who is a Russian student at TCU, who is doing an internship this summer at uh, CSIS. And she's also taking Chinese at night. Uh, over at Johns Hopkins. Dare you just stand up and let everybody see you. <laughs> well, I thought it wouldn't be fair, and, and I must say I want to thank both of you all. I know you sure. didn't have much to do this afternoon, <laughs> there's not much going on, and I, I really do appreciate you taking uh, sure. this time at the busiest time of the day for those of us in television to come and, and talk about journalism and the Sunday shows and what's going on. You know, uh, our old friend Tim Russert used to say that when he was named uh, moderator of Meet the Press, he said he felt that he had been appointed the curator of a national treasure. And I thought uh, I thought that was exactly right because these Sunday shows really are—not uh, to put too fine a point on it—but they are really something special. Uh, Sunday mornings on television is a different time of the day, and it's a different time period from any other time period because. These broadcasts are information driven. They're not about show off anchors. They're not about gotcha questions. Even They're, when we do. Even when we do. <laughs> uh, they are about getting information and trying to advance the story. And, you know, uh, Meet the Press is the oldest program on television. Uh, CBS Face the Nation was started, I guess, about seven years after Meet the Press was started. Uh, for the sole reason of frank stanton who was the president of cbs said we need something to compete with meet the press because they had the only live interview show while they're the oldest uh, abc came along some years after that but while these shows are the oldest continuous shows on television of all the programming on television i would say they have changed the least Mm -hmm. basically we do today exactly what we did in those early shows and that is get the key people involved in the top story of the week, sit them down at the table, turn on the lights and ask questions. Uh, that's what they were doing back then and we have better technology now, but but that's basically what we're doing today. Let's just talk a little bit about the news first. Uh, this was uh, a pretty heavy day for all of us. The president held a news conference We've got the situation building in Iran, uh, George. What, what did you think of what the president said today? He denied, deep in the news conference, that he had ratcheted up the rhetoric. <laughs> but I think he's probably and, uh, a, uh, he's a minority already, of one. Well, on yeah, that he's already because got because he the, clearly did.
2: He's got the disease that infects every single president. They're all convinced, no matter what their press is like, that they're getting the worst press than any president ever gotten. It's just objectively not true here, and I don't understand why he was um, so intent on convincing people that he hadn't changed his position. Uh, you know, clearly, in the, if you go at the 10 days, I mean, he hasn't changed the underlying position of, in, of engaging with Iran no matter what, but Saturday for the first time, he called for an end to the violence. Saturday for the first time, he used the word justice when he talked about the side that the, uh, the, the, the protesters were on. Um, and today, he for the first time, he used the word outrageous, and I think ab- abominable and, and outrageous. And that was clearly the White House is watching this. I think they've been surprised by the strength of the protest movement, and they are calibrating their response. I, hate, I, I hesitate to say anything about intelligence with Mike Hayden sitting in the second row. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, but, too. Right, yeah. But um, you see who's got Senator Warren And right he's got Senator Warren right next to so him. I'm not going to be heading <laughs> into Foreign armed, armed Services issues, either. But I think it's in part, and I, I, I beg you to correct me if I'm wrong, I think part of the reason they're so surprised is that we don't have that much good intelligence about what's happening on the ground in Iran. We haven't had good human intelligence. We had to leave in 79. And we don't really know how the forces are, are, are coalescing, fighting, competing inside that top council of clerics. And I think that's part of the reason why they've, they've had a hard time figuring out exactly what to say on any given day
1: and there's no question this is extremely sensitive we're walking a very fine line here i mean we could, the united states cannot come out and say storm the bastille here and then if help. they do right. it's not going to help a lot of people will get killed and then you have to ask the question well what do you do after that
3: well precisely what do you do after that if there's a an even bloodier crackdown than we've seen i mean i think it's interesting and, and you could you could chart this throughout the week that once the regime got more aggressive then the response got more aggressive and kind. But what do you do if there's even more violence? Plus, I just think it's a practical matter, I mean, look, this is a pragmatic, compromise-driven, realist-driven president who said to our guy at the White House, Chuck Todd, today, uh, I'm not gonna talk about um, what the repercussions might be because we don't know how all this is gonna play out. I mean, I don't think they're much in the business of regime change at this White House. They've seen that movie and it hadn't worked out so well for the previous administration. I think they want to be in the business of of coming to some sort of agreement on nuclear weapons. That's the game here. And I think he is biding his time to see what what and
1: who and how strong a figure he's dealing with. Well uh, one thing he did say, he said what happens in the streets is going to determine how we deal with Iran uh, in the future. So if he was trying to you know hold a little bit of a stick up there. I, right. I guess you could say that was it, but I mean, when but, you come down to options, we're extremely limited in what we could do here. I mean, what would we do? In well raid? And, and Joe what Biden. what would we do if we decide to bomb? I right. mean what kind of a message would that be to the world? We're going to bomb a country if we, like, well, if we don't like if we don't like the way the election came out? right also, but, but they'll, they'll
3: maintain that, that that engagement with Iran is not going to be a reward for good behavior. So certainly there hasn't yep. been any good behavior to reward here in the past week and a half. I think the question is whether the Iranian regime is weaker, more defensive, more isolated, and does that make them more or less willing to deal with the United States? Their whole strategy here, and that's why this Russia meeting is important, is to to peel off all the patrons, kind of like the healthcare care debate. You peel off all the patrons away from Ahmadinejad, and then maybe, you, uh, you know, maybe he's got fewer places
2: to turn. And that may be the question, even setting aside with the Iranians, we have so little control over them, given what they've revealed about themselves in the last two weeks, are Russia and China more likely now to go to the stage of really imposing tough sanctions Mm -hmm. uh, on the Iranians now that they've been revealed? We don't know the answer uh, to that. And I think that's the other reason the president is biding his time.
1: I thought one of the more interesting things uh, in the news conference today, just as a longtime watcher of news conferences, is that the second question went to the Huffington Post. And the president said in the news conference he was calling on the Huffington Post uh, uh, correspondent because he understood that a lot of people in Iran are getting their news off the off the yeah. internet.
3: And let me let me just add, as somebody who was in the White House press corps, who was accused not personally, but you know we were always in questions about whether Bush had the questions in advance for the press conferences, which he never did, and there was never any discussion to that effect. Uh, the president today called on uh, uh, Nico from Huffington Post and seemed to indicate you know, exactly he knew what he was going to ask. Well, what he you... sort of gave well, him the question. He, he sort of gave him the and question. And he he said, to... <laughs> I know you've got you know, questions coming from, uh, from Iran. It just, just struck it was, me as a I, lot. I thought
2: it was hor- beyond odd. Yeah. I-, I thought it was uh, – there's nothing wrong with calling on Nico Pitney. There's nothing wrong yeah. with calling on the Huffington Post. There's nothing wrong with going and reading his live blog, which anybody could have done, and seen him say, I'm right. going to ask a question about Iran. But the president basically told him what question to ask. And that just had the feel, you know, of kind of state-managed media. I
1: I think what he was trying to do uh, is is to try to underline he's trying to get through to those Iranian protesters in the street. But I I agree with you. I think think at best it was uh, somewhat awkward in the way he did it. Another thing to note here, which I found quite interesting today, is that for the first time that I can ever recall at a presidential news conference, the president did not call on the New York Times, mm. the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Philadelphia Inquirer. It was almost like he was going over the big city media. What what was that about?
3: Well, I'm mean, going to say a couple of things. Uh, one, clearly this White House doesn't like the New York Times. No, no. That's <laughs> 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 no, I think in this case, you know, he's out there, he's doing a lot of stuff, and I think that he does want to highlight the fact that he's somebody who's more engaged with social media, more engaged with uh, the Internet, and that he will, you know, pick these opportunities to hopscotch around, you know, the the media landscape, uh, you know, with with a, with a fair degree of uh, savvy. He's not going to be boxed in by that. I mean, I do think it's striking, um, you know, that, that he would go out of his way to do that. But I would, I, I gather they would say, look, you know, we're, we're out here doing this enough that it's not like we're looking at it. Well, how does he pick the people he chooses, George?
2: Uh, I'm not inside there, but I, I'm struck by how... How disciplined it is, and yeah. how um, choreographed uh, it is. They, there is zero spontaneity at a White House press conference right now. I mean, he goes in with a list of 18, whatever it is, and, and in the order, and and he, he asks them in direct right. order. He knows exactly who he's calling on.
3: Because Bush, you'd give Bush a list of who was there, and then he kind of and a seating chart. A P man. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: I was, I, I, you know, he <laughs> also does a great play. Yeah, no, 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 I, I see, see the camera, no, <laughs> I? am
2: mostly, mostly envious because we can never get Clinton to call on who he we was supposed to call on. So. Is there
1: a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, whatever happened to the old days when people, you know, raised their hands? And who stopped that? I guess it was the, the Bush one, didn't he? He thought he was just too mm. undignified or something. I sort of liked it when people jumped up to be I recognized. Mean, I,
2: that, listen, we didn't, I mean, in the Clinton White House, we didn't have a, we, he had, uh, you'd go to the first row, mm-hmm. the television correspondence first, and the AP. And in the AP. People. Beyond that, it was he basically did what he wanted.
1: I, and, you know, the other great tradition that has just sort of gone away without remark is that the uh, AP person, the wire service person, used to, the senior person, used to always say thank you. Right. And now it is a person holding the news conference that right. says thank you. I, I remember when I used to cover the White House and these unctuous aides would try to cut off a news conference. Thank you, thank you. And I'd always say, excuse me, I'll say thank you. <laughs> but well, you know, the,
3: another tradition along those lines, when, when you're on Air Force One, uh, it's traditional that if there's really big news, the wires can have the operator on board Air Force One make a call to the wires and get the news out. And I was flying, and, and I'd always get in arguments with AP, and I'd say... <laughs> Listen, Terry. Terry Hunt. I would say those days are over. Okay, <laughs> those days of you, the wires dominating. I said you've got organizations out here with uh, you know twenty-four hour cable operations. If we're going to make a call, we're all making the call. <laughs> and we went back and forth. And uh, uh, actually, it was not Terry. It was, somebody, it was somebody else who actually let it happen. Terry said he would have never let it happen. But you know, this is a big debate about whether you, who could call from the plane.
1: I don't think it's fair for me to grill you guys. So, George, you asked the questions for a while. Wow. Uh. <laughs> this is your one and only chance. <laughs> this is my only chance.
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, I guess, um, since you have been doing this the longest, and I've only come up in a world where I expect, from being on both sides, expect anybody who comes on to be perfectly uh, prepared uh, know exactly what they want to say, know exactly what they don't want to say. And we saw a lot of that with the president today. Ha- I guess my question is, how different is it?
1: Well, it is it? different. Uh, the, it, you know, when I came to Washington, and I, I came in 1969, which if you want to add that up, that would be 40 years, uh, 40 years ago. When I came to Washington, most members of Congress didn't even have press secretaries. Uh, it, it was such so informal in those days and and the other part of it was there were not nearly as many reporters in those days as there are now we're getting we're getting ready to see a lot fewer reporters that's for sure with newspapers in the kinds of trouble uh, that there are uh, but it, it was much more informal you had a much better opportunity uh, to have a face-to-face uh, uh, you know uh, contact with people when we used to go on these White House trips uh, that was where you really got to develop your sources and really got to have dinner with people. And now, as, as you all know, sometimes you can go on a White House trip and never get within three miles of the president. It's uh, most of the discovered, uh, and this is because of the increased security and uh, in all of that. But, I mean, I often tell this story. Uh, when I was a rookie reporter and I was sent over to the White House one Sunday morning, Uh, people forget this but Richard Nixon actually held church services in the East Room of the White House the Mm. first year of his presidency and they'd have a visiting evangelist and they'd have uh, you know they'd sing some hymns and then at the end everybody go up in a little receiving line and they shake hands with the president and one time Helen Thomas old Helen and I were always there I was a rookie and I'd get sent over there. If there had been any news, I'd have to go back and give it to Dan Rather. It was the White House. But there never was. So I would go over there just to make sure nothing happened. And one Sunday, we were actually over there, and, and Helen said, get in the line. And I said, Helen, we're not supposed to get in the line. And I said, that's where really, the... No, get in the line. We'll ask him some questions. I said, well, I don't have any questions. And she said, we'll ask him about those advisors. Well, there was this story going around that Nixon was going to bring in some new advisors. People didn't know if they were coming from outside the government or inside the government. So I got up there and Helen said, ask him. And I said, uh, Mr. President, uh, these advisors, will these be in-house advisors? Oh, no, he said, these will be out-house advisors. <laughs> and, and then he said, Well, no, you know what I mean. And he went on, <laughs> went on about his business. But <laughs> because of that, I can honestly say I've interviewed every president since Nixon. <laughs> nobody, but my, nobody but my mother, and I think that was an interview.
5: But my mother thought it was a great
1: question. It's <laughs> so, a good question. I said, See Senator Sasser out there, <laughs> former ambassador to China. I didn't see you, Senator. How are you today? Uh, but it was just, you know, with the more people that come, and with every administration, I think every administration learns from the previous one, and it becomes more organized. You know, we become very sophisticated in this country on how we we deal with information, yep. and uh, everybody has a has a line, but. You know, you stick to the line, you don't say anything except what you came there to say. I think people do a real disservice uh, when they come on these Sunday shows and don't have something to say. Sam yeah. Nunn, who's the chairman of CSIS, is still my favorite guest because you would call Sam and say, You want to be on Face the Nation? And he'd say, Bob, I really don't have anything to say this Sunday. I wish. Everybody who didn't have anything to that's say right. uh, <laughs> would follow Sam Nunn's line. And I think it I think it really helps. I think you really hurt yourself when you come on there. And we uh, can
2: clearly feel the difference. Right.
1: Exactly. And the audience and, I think and, is, and is people pretty sophisticated. Know. They're smart. Yeah, yeah. They the when you're not answering the questions. Right. You look evasive, and, and it just just not not is you at all. Mm. I mean, if you, my advice is if you difference is if you same thing is that the difference is that to say, know what you want to say that's okay. But we'd be willing to answer questions about it. And if you don't have anything to say, stay home and watch. On television.
2: <laughs> I agree. Uh, well, then, I David. What surprised you most, six months in?
3: Well, I, you know, I look. I don't think it's. Um, uh, I don't know that I've uh, I've been surprised. Uh, but I think you know it. it is magnified, certainly uh, taking over a program like this, becoming a custodian of a program like this after Tim's death um, has been difficult. You know, it's the kind of transition that nobody's prepared to make, organizations aren't prepared to make, and even though there's transition in TV news, you don't see it, Uh, you don't see it like this. And so, you know, it's uh, it's a big challenge when you have a figure who loomed so large and so I still think that that's something that, uh, you know, that, that I am uh, reckoning with. Um, but I tell you, in terms of the surprise is, I guess, two things, um, how impactful the programs are. And it goes to your point, which is we have this incredible luxury of, of sitting down and doing interviews for, for anywhere from you know, 20 to, to, to 30 minutes. And people are sitting down and they are watching these programs and they are listening. They are not usually engaged in some other activity like they are with some of the other programming. And so that sort of impact, what you say and the kind of news you can make through this form is like nothing I've ever uh, experienced before. And then I'd say the other surprise, I remember when I would, if I would ever fill in for Tim or if I'd be on the program, I thought, wow, you've got, you know, 45 minutes or thereabouts of talk time. That is an enormous amount of time. And then you, then you get it and you still realize you're, you're having to throw stuff out because you're running out of time. And I thought, wow, what an adjustment that you can make so quickly to do this much time. Uh, but guys, there's just, there is nothing better than to prepare for and have an opportunity for this kind of length and for this kind of depth. And I, you know, to the point that you made, Bob, earlier, which is that for however dramatic the landscape has changed, how, however dramatically that's happened, there is still this place where people say, uh, yes, I'm getting information from lots of other sources, but this is still a place and time that I want to dedicate time to, uh, to really hear somebody out and, and perhaps learn something. So you get a chance. Well, I guess I'd ask both of you. I mean, the other big story today the president dealt with was health care. And, uh, you know, we've all seen this play out uh, before uh, during the Clinton years. What's different now?
1: I think we're just at the very, it's like we're in this big forest, you know, and we've just taken the first two steps into the forest, and really all you can see is the forest here. I don't think at this point anybody knows how this thing is going to come out. Uh, Can you have health care for everyone on top of what the government is already doing with the stimulus package, with the help to the auto companies, with climate change and all of that? I don't know that this is going to get done. Well, uh, I don't think,
2: I don't think you, healthcare for everyone is going to get done. Yeah, I, I think we already see the uh, that it's just it's going to be almost impossible given the economic constraints. Once you say, I mean, it's it's a lot of money, but once you say it's limited to a trillion dollars, you're pretty much saying you're not going to cover mm-hmm. everyone at least right right away. And that's the one bottom line coming out of the president's press conference today was basically this was going to be. I am sorry, oh. but, and this, I only left my phone on in case they called. Mrs. Mm -hmm. Giuliani, right? Um, The only bottom lines the president said were, I want something that is going to control costs and that is paid for, uh, basically. And he wants to expand access and expand the the number of insured, but he didn't say uh, cover everyone. In fact, I thought significantly today uh, the president, he gave an impassioned defense of this public health insurance option, but he didn't say, I wouldn't sign a bill that didn't have it.
5: Mm-hmm. And he said, he all
2: I'll say is that it, it makes sense. But to answer your question directly, I think there are at least three big changes from 93 uh, and 1994. Number one, uh, the problem for a lot of Americans has gotten worse. Marginal increase in the number of uninsured costs have definitely gone up for most Americans. Number two, and this is, I think, a lo- uh, something that helps the president, the Democrats in the Congress are not at the end of a 40 year ride of being in charge in the final days of their majority. They're they're a majority that has been tempered by by being in the minority for eight to 10 years. And I think that has made them more open uh, to compromise. And then third, and I think this is the squishiest one, um, it's clear that the business community feels a need to be on the side of acting like they're for, being part of the solution at the front end of this process. I'm not sure they're all going to stick around uh, to the back end. I think that's where a lot of the play is right. o- over, over the next couple of months. But going in, it's a big, big difference to have them say, at least suggesting they're going to be on the side of it I
1: I just think we're, we're so not in this enough that you can even, until we know how we're going to pay for it, until we have some idea of what shape it's going to be, uh, what shape it's going to take, I don't think you can say. Uh, right now how this is going to come well, out.
3: Well, I, and I think one of the other problems is that the, the central argument that the president makes is that ultimately a government controlling government costs is about controlling health care costs. But he's just a little far behind in making that argument. You know, you can't have government intervention to this extent. You can't have an $800 billion stimulus bill and then talk about a trillion dollar health care plan and say, no, but this is the thing that really saves the government money down the road. I mean, Look, there's obviously substance to that argument, but it seems to me, Bob, from the point of view of Republicans, Republicans who have virtually no strength at the moment, nevertheless, have something of a roadmap here, not only to oppose this, but to start to oppose the president on the opaqueness of his exit strategy in terms of government intervention.
1: Uh, How do you, I mean, the president argued today that, yes, indeed, private insurance companies can compete with the government and a government health plan. how, how do, um, Help me with that argument, George. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea what your, no, what your thoughts on it, but I mean, how can uh, something that's in business to turn a profit or at least break even compete with a government that doesn't have to turn a
2: profit? Well, I think it depends on how much money the government is willing to put into the plan to, and, and how much money the government is willing to put behind it and subsidize it so that the, the premiums are lower. Uh, for and where does the government there.
1: get the money for this? Well, that gets
2: back to your other point. Of you know, the one place where this has fallen apart is every single idea so far for to to raise revenue to pay for this has been knocked down. Now they may end up coming back to some of the ideas that have been knocked down, but they, no no idea that's been <coughs> to get two, three, four hundred billion dollars has has survived more than two or three days of debate on Capitol Hill.
1: Do either of you think the uh, climate bill is going to? Be acted on this year I, it seems to
3: me that they, they uh, it 's got a little bit more momentum behind it, but it seems to me that uh, you know everything is now locked in behind health care that I could see that slipping it doesn 't seem like it has the same uh, priority that that health care does I think
2: it 'll pass the house I think it could ha- it could pass the house maybe even this week i mean they 're hoping it 's going to pass the house this week. then the question will be you know how it, and its fate is tied to health care reform, and I completely agree that right now, health care reform has the priority. It's not out of the question that if health starts to fade, you'll actually see the chances of climate right. change starting uh, to rise, although that's a big right. tax increase.
3: Because what, what I think, it, right, but I think what's important here is that what the president needs is a signature legislative achievement, uh, and the stimulus bill is not gonna count. I mean, he needs something on the domestic agenda that he actually achieves here. Um, and, and that's why I think health care is, is the big game for him.
2: And that's why I think, I think he'll be willing to compromise just right. about anything right. to have a bill he can sign. Talk about lessons learned from the Clinton a- experience. I mean, that was clearly a case where going in, uh, there were 22 Republican senators for universal health care at the beginning of that process. They had all bled away by the end, in part because um, we took too hard a line uh, in the Clinton White House. I vividly remember a day when, The president was going to give give a speech where he said he was suggesting that he would accept 95% coverage, and first lady and a lot of other people in the White House came down hard and said that's just absolutely unacceptable. That was taken off the table. You look back 15 years and say you could have gotten 95% of what you wanted. You'd take it in 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 a heartbeat, Um, and that's why I think this White House has has internalized that lesson. I think Rahm's line is that the the only non-negotiable principle here is success. (laughs) <laughs> um, th- that's why I think part of their game will be um, saying that whatever they get is a victory signing it and moving on
1: uh, let's talk about uh, journalism and where it stands right now there's no question uh, newspapers are really having a hard time David do you think newspapers are going to make it?
3: well I hope they do um, I think uh, I think they've got a huge challenge and I think that It's like what the broadcast networks are going through as well. I mean, I think that some of the model has to change, and they've got to find different ways to make money. But I still think that there's a fundamental demand for uh, not only, you know, as Ben Bradley says, having a paper that really is tied into a community and can represent a community and, and, uh, and provide the kind of information and context and perspective that you can't get anywhere else. Um, so I think they, look, whether it's newspapers or magazines, they're all struggling to find a way to stay afloat. I think it is so important to have major newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post who have, you know, whether they've got the resources or not, certainly still have the reach to, to put people all over the world and to uh, provide the kind of reporting that, uh, you know, a lot of the networks have had to step away from. What do you think, George? News
2: organizations are going to survive. I don't know if the actual hard paper copy, which I love—I mean, I love nothing more than getting up early in the morning, and seeing that blue wrapped New York Times on my doorstep. I'm not—you know—I'm not sure if it's going to survive in, in the same way. Um, but I think there, people will figure out a way to make money um, on on uh, on the web. They're going to have to. Uh, it, you know, it might take relaxing some antitrust laws. See, that's uh, what... to, to to make it. Really work because I mean the big lot more partnerships yeah a lot more partnership. Uh, well,
1: to where you can go back to the days when the same people or the same company could own the newspaper and the television station mm-hmm. in town that that may be one way out of this, but you know I, and I agree with you, I, I hope these national newspapers can survive, but I also hope these smaller papers can survive right. because. Uh, if they don't, if we don't have somebody that goes to the police station every day, that goes to the courthouse right. every day, not that goes there uh, when there's a story, not when they think something is happening, but every day we will have corruption in this country and in local and state governments and, and like that, we have never seen
0: you before. You also are going to have
1: complete detachment from, from your actual communities. I mean, if you think
3: about the strength, because local news mm-hmm. is also in so much trouble. and mm-hmm. The auto industry is the big advertisers for local news. So they're feeling it. So if you don't have a newspaper or a local news organization with some reach, you've got no real tie to to your community at all. The good news and the bad news and the, and the government news, so that's a real threat. Uh,
1: the, the other thing that I, th- that I think is very important to keep in mind, it's not so much, I think, whether it's printed on a piece of paper or you read yeah. it online. It's the information there. Is it accurate? Is it the kind of product that newspapers turn out today? Newspapers uh, uh, cost a lot of money to produce because it takes a lot of people to do it. You need editors, you need reporters. You have to send somebody to all these places every day, even when there's not news going and on.
2: And even though there are endless debates about uh, In, whether the mainstream media is, is liberal or conservative or whatever, there has to be a place where people at least try not to put a political spin. Yeah,
1: and where on people can news. agree on the facts. Yeah. Right. And and that is the important thing. And I mean, right. uh, to put it say, well, uh, the Daily Bugle is going online. That's fine if it's the same Daily Bugle that's printing the newspaper. But if it's ten guys on a blog that just get up in the middle of the night and decide to write Read something, other that yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, that then that is not a newspaper. And that that is the thing that I think what we have to remember: it's the product right. that they're putting out. And you can only do that uh, when you have uh, a large staff. That can do what we expect from newspapers mm-hmm. today. Well, let's take some questions from the audience. All right, there's one right there.
6: Well, that was a good introduction because I have. Uh, I'm an online publisher. Good. Well, we'd like to know who
1: you are because we like to know who comes. So
6: tell us. In addition to my name is Paula Gordon, I have a brand new uh, website that will be accessible by domain name on Thursday, called um, EligibilityQuestions.com. And my question is, I've, one of the things that I'll focus on is why in the media, mainstream media, including the right wing uh, cable uh, uh, networks have not focused on eligibility questions, a whole host of various eligibility questions.
1: What do you mean by that? What eligibility for what? Uh,
6: for the presidency. For what? For the presidency. For the questions presidency? Sur- surrounding the presidency. Yes.
1: And in, in other words, like...
2: You can be 30 instead of 35. Pardon me?
1: You mean no. what you have to do to be qualified to be president or what?
6: Yes. The constitutional qualifications that require a natural born citizen uh, to be president. This is not being covered and the fact that the... the um, it strikes me as a real mystery why the right wing and the left wing uh, of the mainstream media. Are, are you
1: driving to the point that you think the current president is not eligible to be president? Or I'm,
6: I'm driving at the point is there are questions. For instance, Bobby Jindal um, uh, has his parentage. Um, his parents were not uh, naturalized citizens at the time of his birth. Um, well, there are questions, uh, you know, whether or not an individual is eligible.
1: Uh-huh. All right. Well I I take your point. Well maybe that's something we ought to focus on more. I, I would have to say I think we're handling that okay. But uh, uh, well you know that's that's there, what we there, have here there in America. Are several we, hundred
6: thousand people thinking that that who have petitioned who who yeah. uh, think that, that the yeah. question is. Well I mean not there are some people
1: who think we didn't addressed. go to the moon, but I mean, you know,
6: that that no well is
1: we, we're a country that doesn't always agree on other uh, on everything, Thank here's you. another question, yes.
5: Thank you very much, um, my name's Edie Wilson and I actually came to ask a question. Okay. We lived through a really long political campaign and a really big financial crisis and as I watched, religiously by the way, um, the both of these shows, in fact all three of them, TiVo's a wonderful thing, I kept wanting to figure out what I thought of the balance between the economic coverage and the political coverage. And I want to know what you think of it, both during the election and now. When I reflect on it, I thought I saw a lot more political process, who did what to whom and who's up in what primary and what's going on with whatever, which seemed less important than taking the premise, and I take the premise that these are important programs of talking about economic issues with the world and with the American people. So it's a hard thing to get right. How do you feel you did?
3: Well, look, I think um, uh, political campaigns uh, are sort of notorious for a lot of horse race coverage, a lot of process coverage. It's what a lot of people are interested in. It's also a really important part of the process. Uh, But uh, I uh, I wasn't at the helm of Meet the Press during the campaign. But nevertheless, I think for all the programs, there's still more depth on economic matters in the course of the campaign than you're going to get throughout uh, most of the other landscape um, of political coverage. And since the president has been in office, this has really been unique. Uh, and I think our level of coverage and detail into the financial crisis and the complexities of the financial system uh, has been appropriately deep. Now let's stipulate one point, and that is that most people, I don't really like the term mainstream media because it's used kind of pejoratively. but. But uh, the the point is that uh, most people in journalism do not understand how our financial system works, okay? Uh, But I got news for you. There's There's a lot of people in the financial system, evidently, who didn't have a keen understanding either. So we had to really step up. We had to step up and do our homework and dig deep, both so we could understand and explain in a way that was accessible and that we could also hold our leaders accountable. And that's no small thing. But in the course of that, you really do recognize that, A, you've got people on Wall Street who don't ever have the experience of having to speak to Americans in in real terms and layman's terms about what they do, about what the complexities are. Um, And you have those challenges who are faced by government officials as well, including the Treasury Secretary, who's had enormous difficulty speaking to the American uh, people about these issues. So I think certainly in the past six months, you have seen great depth Uh, But let's also, you know, don't just turn this on us, you know. uh, It sounds like you're quite interested in these issues and that's important. But it's important for everybody who demands all of this depth that you show up and that you watch and that you really take notice. Because there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, listen, why aren't you covering, uh, you know, mark-to-market accounting? And then we do it and where where are you? Then suddenly you're not in the room (laughs) watching TV. So I think it's an important point all the way around. And I think that certainly since this president's gotten into office, you have seen uh, enormous depth, I think you've seen you know, people kind of getting into this topic who have not been into it before and it's, um, it's been important, I mean I speak for myself, it's been important to kind of go and try to achieve that level of depth because the, 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 uh, the impact of it is so great.
1: I, I couldn't agree with David more. I, I have made the point in several talks lately that I've been a reporter now for 52 years and and in that time, I have covered everything from hubcap fees to arms control negotiations (laughs) and and I could never remember a story where I didn't feel that I had a point of view on whether the government was doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But when this financial crisis hit and we began to see these problems unfold, I I felt that I simply didn't have the the technical expertise to know uh, whether what the government was doing was the right thing or the wrong thing. I mean, did we need a stimulus? Yes, I think we did, but did we have the right combination? Was this the right way to go about it? These are very, very complex issues, and I agree with you, David. I think we're all learning and still trying to learn. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I like to think I probably know more about politics than I do about uh, covering uh, finance because I've spent my life covering politics. I would say on the coverage of the politics side of it, I thought we did a very good job. I, I think, and not so much because of the press, but because of the campaign. I have always been one of those who believes it is the candidates who make the campaign. We just show up and write about it and ask questions about it. It's the candidates, in the end, who make the campaign. Uh, I thought we had two excellent candidates this year, three excellent candidates. I thought Hillary Clinton was quite a good candidate, and I thought she really uh, uh, advanced the cause of women. I mean, uh, she's the first woman who was taken seriously as a presidential candidate, and, and the, the way she, ran, uh, she conducted herself in that campaign is going to make it a lot easier for my children and grandchildren, uh, who are all girls, uh, if, if they decide that they want to run for president. So I, I feel very indebted to her for the way uh, she cleared the way for women. And uh, I, I thought Barack Obama, it was historic in every way it seems to me, and not just from the fact he was the first African-American. I mean, the fact that we again saw that words count, that rhetoric counts. I mean, when did we somehow in this country get the idea that that it was not important to be able to make a speech or talk to people or connect with people. We also found for the first time in a long time that crowds count. Remember in the beginning when everybody said, oh, he's just a celebrity. Those crowds don't amount to anything. Well, I think we now understand that they do. And if you go back and look, when Barack Obama started to draw big crowds, then the other candidates started to draw big crowds. Mm -hmm. People somehow remembered it's kind of fun to go out and, (laughs) and see a candidate in person. So I thought it was a wonderful campaign. And uh, I I must say, I mean, you know, it's my view, and you know where I'm coming from, but I thought we did a good
2: job on it. I, I would just add, I, I, you know, we're all sitting here defending our turf, but yeah. I, I completely agree with both with what Bob and David said. I would just add one other point, and I, 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 I do bristle a little bit when I hear of this, you know, dichotomy between here's the politics on the one hand and the policy and the substance on the other because they are inextricably linked, and every decision made, in a White House or the Congress is going to try to balance out what people believe is the right thing to do, what will work, what is, and what can get done, what can get through the process. And part of our job is to make sure people are getting both sides in balance. And I mean, I'm sure there are days when we you know, air, uh, fall too far on one side or the other, but I don't think we're doing our job unless we show how those two, those two sides go together.
1: Okay? Right here. We, we need to have a guy. We've got to have gender equality here.
7: Thank you. Um, Paolo von Schirach, Schirach Report. Uh, you, I think, Mr. Schiffer, mentioned at the very beginning, at the end of your remarks, something about uh, the need to maintain even in you know, the small town media so that we can agree on the facts, something mm-hmm. to that effect. I mean, Bringing yes. back that particular point, my perception, I guess it's a big, large issue, that indeed with the proliferation of new media, the Internet, all the things that we know, and the availability and the very low entry point and the bloggers, etc., and indeed the decline of the audience of both mainstream uh, network television as well as the big newspapers, as you alluded to in your conversation earlier on, and, in, and the fact that opinion dominates, that now opinion is what makes news, which is sort of a contradiction in terms, that we may get to a point in which with the proliferation of opinion journalism and all the talk shows, etc., or even the fact that on cable news, you know, the, journal, the anchor asks mm-hmm. the person, what do you think about all this, mm-hmm. as opposed to what happened? And so the journalist provides their opinion about what happened. That we may get to a point that we don't have a set of facts that we share and on which, as you do in your talk shows, you can argue and have a, an intelligent conversation about. Is this a trend? I mean, is this actually happening or is it just, just a No, a it, but it's, it's
1: part of how the, the whole idea of journalism, you know, the fact is that objectivity is a fairly new concept in journalism. I mean, well, it is. I mean, it probably goes back to what? About World War II or between World War I and II when we began to talk about Objectivity and that sort of that uh, that sort of thing up until that point, I mean every publication had a point of view in Lincoln's time, you had Republican newspapers, Whig newspapers and and so on so that that's all fairly new but but what's happening here and the way the internet has changed everything the internet, if you stop and think about it, is the first vehicle to deliver news we've ever had that doesn't have an editor. the worst newspaper. The smallest radio station has somebody who knows where the stuff comes from. Stuff pops up on the Internet. You don't know if it's true. You don't know if it's false. You don't know if it's something in between. Uh, You have very reliable websites. Uh, I like to think the CBS website. If you see it there, you know it's been vetted by CBS News. You know it's gone through the same process that we use when we put things on, on the CBS Evening News or the Morning News. New York Times website. Uh, those are the same products. They've gone through the editing process, and that's that's what has changed things here. Uh, this stuff pops up. It's out there. It used to be the kind of thing that was just whispered in campaigns. Now it's on the website. Look, when Sarah Palin uh, was first uh, chosen as George uh, as uh, John McCain's running mate. There were all these rumors that were going around. The mainstream media, we were all taking hits. Why are you circulating all this stuff? We weren't. We we were trying to check it out like you would any news tip. None of that stuff was uh, on any of the networks, any of the major newspapers until the McCain campaign put out a written press release and said, Sarah Palin's 17-year-old daughter is pregnant, and so on and so forth. Then, of course, uh, we printed that. But the fact that it wasn't in any mainstream publication. The fact was people still knew about
2: it. It
1: was all over the place. They were having to deal with it. We were having to deal with it. And that's what has really changed things here.
2: And and I just think it actually puts a special responsibility for for all of us on Sunday. I feel like an editor most of the time and that a big part of our job in trying to pull together the week that was and the week ahead for people is sifting through all of the stuff that was out there all week long on cable, on the Internet. And we do decide in some in some fashion, you know, what sh- needs to be talked about in this hour. It's a, a big part of our job in the questions and moderating the discussions is making sure that we bring facts to the yeah. table so that then people can feel like they're joining a, a discussion where there isn't agreed upon. Set. Well, that's okay. what I mean.
1: I think the mainstream media, our role now is to, you know, present the facts that people can agree on. And I think that's our job. I mean, there was a thing that popped up. This is absolutely true. Uh, several years ago, they popped up on the Internet that said uh, Jerry Rice, who in that, at that time was a wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders, had showed up at Face the Nation. And Bob Schieffer was really surprised because he thought Condoleezza Rice was coming. <laughs> well, somebody had obviously written this as a joke. But it popped up on the internet, and I tell you, if you go by the email that I I get, I'll guarantee you a lot of people thought it was true. It went on to say that uh, that uh, once I got over my shock, that Jerry Rice had some very interesting things to say about, <laughs> but you know, but that's that's what we're operating in. I mean, this this communications revolution we're going through here, it has a downside as well as as the a good side. Yeah, thank you. Good point. Uh, right here, go ahead.
5: Maryam Nawabi from America Broad Media. I host a show that broadcasts in Afghanistan to show you know, American people on issues. I wanted to touch on the issue of war correspondence and war coverage, especially with respect to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, as you know there 's this need to know about how many bombs went off and during conflict, but then the stories after to really get into the complexity of rebuilding and u s engagement don 't get as much coverage. Um, do, how do you think the media has done with respect to covering Uh, you know, let's say the uh, efforts in Afghanistan after most of the major conflict and some of it continues in the south?
3: Look, I think this is a similar point to one of the questions here about the economy, which is um, there is a, a sort of desire and a certain expectation that the news media writ large is going to stay on kind of every floor of these major stories. Um, and, it, you know, for, for resource questions, for just sheer attention spans, it's not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, you talk about the region in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, it's is dangerous now or more dangerous than it's ever been. But getting people to really focus on that is difficult, just like it was after America averted its eyes um, uh, after the engagement. You know, at, at the uh, you know in in the late 70s. So uh, there there is just a cycle here. You know, we should be paying attention to things that we're not talking about because that could be the next great threat. Uh, but it's very difficult to kind of put that on the agenda for people to really pay attention to. So yeah, I mean, there's I think a natural um, lessening or just kind of a a. a, a, a uh, a degrading of that coverage for things like what happens after the bombs fall and the engagement. I think you just get more periodic looks. But, you know, there is more niche coverage where that kind of thing is going on, where you've got some of the major papers who do have people who are covering it. But in terms of really grabbing the country by the scruff of the neck and saying, focus on Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, it would have been great if uh, President Bill Clinton had given a prime time address saying there's this group called the Taliban in Afghanistan. It's really, really dangerous. But there was not the political will or, you know, attention to really do that. And I think the news media tends to reflect that. And there's sometimes a desire for us to put things, these things on the agenda. And I think that can be very difficult to do. Okay. Next question. How about here?
4: Thank you for a very enlightening discussion. I have been following the Sunday news program for a long time. What I see is the sameness of the guests and the sameness of perspective. And on some of the issues, uh, as uh, David Gregory has mentioned, because I was a great admirer of Tim Russett, I don't see enough depth, for example, the issue of Iran. There's a criticism of the President that he's probably a bit timid and he's very pragmatic. But I think there's not enough uh, perspective given because of the lack of diversity of opinion. And why is he being quiet on Iran? Because his primary focus is on Afghanistan. And Iran has a card to play in Afghanistan in Afghanistan, where America wishes to stay for quite some time, and also has a card to play in Iraq, which where America wishes to exit. And also on the core issue of the israeli palestinian conflict, Iran is, has a place at the table. So that issue doesn't come out. On the nuclear <clears throat> issue, again, the, the views are very American-centric. A broader picture is not given on the other nations who have nuclear programs, which are not being, to use your word, vetted adequately. So I wish that there is a greater desire to go into depth on the issue of Chechnya. I don't see that reflected very adequately, which should have been given more greater attention. So that's my point, at greater diversity of guests, less sameness, and more desire to probe into issues which can cause problems for America and for the rest of the world, because technically right now we are in the same historic boat. Thank
0: you. All
1: right. Much. Thank you for your point. Uh, I no. wish there were
3: <laughs> tens of millions of people who agreed
1: with you on okay. Chechnya. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> or oh, Go ahead. You could be next.
2: Sorry. <laughs> um, my name is Rebecca Barley
3: and I'm a journalist. I'm actually reading your book, This Just In, right now. And what I get from your book, it both humbles me and empowers me um, because you were a dogged reporter
5: with the Star-Telegraph for 12 years before you came to Washington. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you guys is I am the next generation of journalists. And before... This meeting, I was at a meeting at NPR where they were talking about Facebook and Twitter and blogging being the next social medium. So I'm curious, what is your advice? I can't go work for my local hometown paper anymore, so how can I get
3: the experience in reporting to be, you know, to be you guys one day? (laughs) Um, I, I ask this because, you know, I really don't like where media is going. It's my generation
1: that's going to lead it. Well, I think it's a very good question, Rebecca. George, it's, talk about that. It, it, it's tough. George says, <laughs> <laughs> right. to no. Hey, yeah, you answer. wrote the book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you humble there. You know, I, I'm probably the least likely person to, to talk about this because I have a very non traditional path uh, into journalism, even though I did do uh, journalism when I was in uh, college and graduate school. Um, I think, first of all, there are jobs out there. Now, it is true that a lot of the places that are hiring now are places that are much more focused on the web. Atlantic Media is, is, has, has really beefed up. Um, every major uh, news organization, even though they're cutting jobs out of the television side, cutting jobs out of the newspaper side, they're beefing up their digital side. I don't think you should automatically assume that because it's digital, it is necessarily uh, an opinion blog or something that you don't want to be a part of and necessarily not the kind of journalism that you don't want to do. I do think there are some opportunities out there. But I also don't want to be Pollyannish about it. This is a you, – you're, you're in a tough job market right now. The economy is, 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 is in tough shape, and journalism is being hit disproportionately hard. So it, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, one of the things we resist at ABC, and I've always – um, been upset about this, the, you know, the, the only way to get experience is to take an unpaid internship, um, which unless you're wealthy you can't afford uh, to do and at least I, I know we've done a, a small part, we just don't do them anymore and we have only competitive paid uh, internships so at least everyone is on something uh, uh, of an equal footing, but I think that that's a, um, getting that first job at, right now is, is very difficult
1: they they just i would just add one thing it, it is a tough market and and george is absolutely right and and but the thing to remember is there will always be a need for independently right. gathered right. information there's always going to be a need for reporters we don't know exactly where all this is going because the technology is moving so fast but there there is always going to be a need for that and if you're going into a profession where there's a need for it uh, you'll eventually find a job let me, let me It may not be in the place where you want to live the rest of your life or doing exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life but i go along very with george few first jobs are. Yeah. Right. it's well, much easier the, the the main thing to be said about a first job is it's easier to get a job if you have a job so right. don't be too discriminatory about that first job offer that you have probably you probably ought to just take it and then Use that as a platform to go onto something. Can I else? just say briefly? You know, I, I'm often bitter because I miss the go-go
3: '80s in uh, in network news. <laughs> you know that I hear this guy and guys like Brokaw talk about, and uh, yeah, so it's a bummer. But you got to get over it. Those days are over, and uh, and they're not coming back. <laughs> and I'm going to keep working through that. But um, <laughs> well, you know, look, I think you've got to embrace the fact too that, you know part of this digital revolution is also a great thing. I mean, don't be down on it. You're in it. You know, it's your generation. Embrace it. Make it better. Go out there. Because there's lots of opportunities. Let me tell you something. I mean, there are stories from 30 years ago. I mean, the networks used to be incredibly hierarchical places who would not hire young people. You couldn't get in unless you were willing to go over to Vietnam, right? So that's how a lot of people broke in. Well, look, I mean, our guy Richard Engel took a very Actually, traditional path, but it sounded not untraditional in this modern era, which is he picked up. He knew Arabic, and he just went to the region, and he was stringing, and he was writing, and he was doing different things. He was ABC and now NBC. So, you know, there are so many opportunities. So many walls have been knocked down. We've talked about some of the downsides. We'll focus on some of the upsides. There's a, it's a great big world. It's a lot more connected, and uh, and I think there are I think there are lots of uh, lots of opportunities, and so you're, it's a much more dynamic, changing business. But to Bob's point. You know, people still have expectations of us and still demand uh, and want to consume what we do. So go out there and, and get it done. Andrew,
1: did you want to say a word?
0: Well, I want to use my prerogative as a, an employee here at CSIS to ask this question. Now, I know there's no competition at all between you all for guests, <laughs> but I wanted to know who is the, the, who is the most sought-after guest in Washington other than the president and that you would each seek and why?
1: Well, I think right now, uh, I'd, uh, I'd love to hear from Hillary Clinton. Uh, George uh, got fun, a little yeah. scoop on us there. He uh, had the first interview with her as Secretary of State. I'm, I'd still like to have her. That would Michelle be somebody. Obama would be great. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle Obama, Obama, and even better would be that dog.
7: <laughs> <laughs> no,
3: I agree on Michelle Obama uh, is, is great, uh, and and Secretary of State, no question. Uh, but Michelle Obama has become this really unique figure where... You think about where she was in the course of the campaign, and then how she's emerged as both kind of a cultural icon, but somebody with great substance as well. It seems to have you know a lot of balance and is just uh, uh, somebody that people are really interested in.
2: But you know, aside from those two or three people, and there really are, are very few, it's really all about the timing
3: right. and getting exactly.
2: the right person on the right week. And I mean, you you had this you had the best May I've ever seen. Right? <laughs> Chaney and Powell coming out and just basically debating the future of the Republican Party in your show for two or three weeks in a row and just getting the person when they have something to say. Like you can have, I mean, the president's always great, but just about anyone in the cabinet, if you get them on a week where there's news that they want to talk about, that they can explain, that they're prepared to take a stand on, any one of them is fantastic. If you get them on a week where they're coming out simply to fill the 20 minutes, there's only so much you can do.
1: And and again, it's, it's not rocket science you know it's it's getting the newsmaker it's the timing of it and you basically when I look back on it you ask the basic questions I always tell journalism students ask the obvious questions <laughs> young reporters make a great mistake they say Oh, I don't want to ask that because if I ask that he'll think I'm dumb you know <laughs> or I don't need to ask that because I know what he's going to say well let me tell you something when I turned to Dick Cheney and I we were at the end of that that uh, interview and i said to him now rush limbaugh says that colin powell is not a republican he ought to get out of the republican party colin powell says that uh... Rush limbaugh ought to get out of the republican party how do you come down mister vice president and i thought What I would get at the end of the interview was a very artful dodge, maybe a humorous way to evade that question. And he said, well, I have to tell you, as Republicans go, I'd have to go with Rush Limbaugh. I'm never in my wildest dreams. And I've known Dick Cheney since he was Gerald Ford's uh, uh, chief of staff in the White House when he was 32 years old. And no no matter
2: what happened the rest of the day, you had a good day.
1: Yeah, right, You know, I mean, but that's a good example. Never assume. You, you know, know what they're going to I
3: had Secretary Gates on one of my initial weeks, and there was this question of how he'd compare Bush to, uh, to uh, uh, Obama. And uh, I'd obviously seen, you know, that he'd been asked that question and never taken the bait. So I said, no, I'm, not, I'm just not going to ask it because he, he won't go anywhere with it. And then I decided at the last minute to do it. And he sort of brushed it away. And so the other advice is, uh, don't be afraid of saying nothing. Because I sat there and I said, no, really, there must be some difference. And I just sat quiet and watched him. And he just sat there, beat, beat, beat. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, Obama's a lot more analytical than Bush and kind of went off from there. And then he, and then he said the next day, he said the next day he told somebody, well, I wish I hadn't answered that. <laughs> but
1: that's what makes these jobs yeah, really absolutely, fun. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and, and that's, that's why we all be, uh, feel very fortunate that, that we actually have them. You had a question
6: probably getting close to the
1: closing time. Uh,
6: my name is uh, Mark Schaff. I'm actually a CSIS alum and now a reporter with a business magazine published by Crane Communications. I hope you didn't address this right at the top. I missed the first 10 minutes, but I, I'd like to get each of your takes on uh, whether the press is tough enough on President Obama? Oh, we Obama. talked about, oh, that. Talked about yeah. that. Oh, you talked about that? No. Let me ask the other one, then. <laughs> well, I, I Actually, I do. Actually, uh, it's never too early to speculate. It's never too early to do the horse race. Uh, on With the uh, Republican Party, uh, will, speaking of taking on President Obama, will uh, Mitch McConnell or, or John Boehner be able to effectively take on President Obama, or do the Republicans have to wait until the presidential campaign starts, and, and who do you think would be the toughest uh, opponent uh, for for Obama. Those are two hour long seminars. But yeah. um, go ahead. Uh, on the latter point,
3: I you know I, I just don't think we know right now. I mean I I don't think that the challenge to Obama is going to come from Washington. It's going to it'll come from the, the ranks of governors. But you know as uh, you know at this point uh, after George Bush's election, uh, nobody really had a sense of who the head of the Democratic Party was. Uh, and Barack Obama certainly wasn't on the radar screen. And I think Republicans have work to do before they get it together. As to whether, you know, I think there's this is a sort of sliding scale of how tough you are on presidents. I mean, I think that uh, uh, George can say, I mean, I think Bill Clinton had a much harder ride, but uh, maybe, you know, for for different reasons. I mean, I think that there is a sort of um, uh, a, a lot of expectation, the history surrounding Obama and uh, a, a lot of that popularity. Uh, but I think he's getting challenged by, uh, by the press corps. Um, and, uh, you know, look, they, they said similar things about the Bush White House as well. I, I didn't really subscribe to that. So I, I think that this sort of sliding scale of what people mean when they say being tough enough uh, on the president.
1: I, I would say on the Republican Party, the, the Republican Party right now is in the same place that it was in 1964 when Lyndon Johnson scored that huge then record landslide. Uh, over Barry Goldwater and people said it's all over the Republican Party is doomed and so on four years later of course Richard Nixon was elected president Uh, it always parties always go through this uh, after a presidential defeat and and what's happening in the Republican Party right now is there is no identifiable leader Uh, it's really too soon for anybody to have broken out of the pack but certainly none of these uh, these candidates have and so that is why you see the republican party now sometimes getting its leaders mixed up with its cheerleaders and the <laughs> cheerleaders are moving out onto the field rather than the people who are actually the leaders uh, of the party i would have to say and this is just my opinion and it's a total wild guess. i think uh... tim plenty the uh, governor of minnesota uh, may wind up as the strongest republican candidate he has a way of saying things, he can sometimes say the same thing that, uh, say, Rush Limbaugh says, but say it in a way that uh, people, you know, kind of nod their heads. He he's he's not uh, he doesn't put his fine an edge on it, uh, but he's a guy with a blue collar background. He is a very very good uh, uh, biography, as it were. Uh, He's been the governor of a state. He's sort of been away from some of the things that uh, people hold against the Republican Party in general right now. I I think he's going to be, might well turn out to be, and a lot, you know, we're a long way from there, might well turn out to be uh, a formidable... He's also north uh, of the Mason-Dixon line. Yes. uh, Which is... uh, Candidate, Uh, I think it's pretty clear that Romney's going to try again. I don't know where that goes. I guess Mike Huckabee. Uh, thinks he has a chance again, and he may well. I mean, after all, this is the guy that won won the Iowa caucuses uh, the last time out, and uh, there'll be some more, a few governors. But right now, uh, they're just going through what all parties do after they lose. They're, they're trying to, you know, get organized. Well, and were.
2: well, but I think it's it's an open question whether they're actually going through what parties need to do to win, though. Yes. Whether they're making the kind of changes. De- that the Democrats had to make in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, and whether they really can come up with a candidate that is that casts a much wider net right. mm-hmm. uh, than they, than they and have. you haven't heard anybody
3: it. say that we're going to sort of reform the, the Republican Party for the future in this way. Well, they, they you know, there's so. some
2: people that try. You, know, you have Huntsman come out and say we well, have to do it. The president picks them off and sends yeah. them. <laughs> uh, to but, I mean, Democrats did that
1: with, a place the, farther with the away. nomination of George McGovern. You, they, you know, they were going to reform the party, and, and some people would say they still haven't gotten over that, or at least they didn't until, I think until right. Clinton was but elected.
2: But it couldn't be more wide open
1: yeah. uh, than it uh, is. I think that's right. the now, I
2: line. actually probably think a little bit more of Romney's chances than you do if only um, for, the, for one reason, the fact that he went out there and got beat. What you learn in that uh, is invaluable, and especially in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Nixon, uh, Reagan, not Bush, not the second Bush, but the mm-hmm. first Bush, they all became president after trying uh, and losing. Uh, on, your, on your first question about the press, um, beyond everything else, beyond the fact that he was an historic president in, in, in getting elected, I think the magnitude of the problems the country faces right now are the president's best friend in, in terms of, of the coverage. Because, the, because there are so many big things to be dealing with, whether it's the trouble in the economy or unwinding a war in Iraq, intensifying one in Afghanistan, all of the unrest uh, in Iran, the big issues of health care, education, energy, there are so many big things, and he's filled and he's, and he's proposing solutions, whether you agree or disagree uh, with them, to deal with them. You can't get caught up in a lot of trivia with, uh, w- with the president, even when he makes mistakes. Uh, they get superseded uh, by by other stories pretty quickly. And I think that's definitely helping.
1: You know, I didn't answer that part of the question and I wasn't trying to evade it. But uh, I I would just add this. I think in the end, yes, the president's getting a lot of publicity right now. And and a lot of it is favorable. Uh, But in the end, uh, it doesn't really matter. In the end, it's policy. Good public relations cannot trump bad policy. And uh, bad public relations uh, will not kill good policy. And it, just an example of that, I would offer the presidency of Richard Nixon. Mm. Uh, Richard Nixon was driven from office. Uh, he carried on a war with the press. But when you look back on it, the good things that he did—the opening to China, the arms control work he did with the Soviet Union—they're still seen as significant achievements. The bad things he did are seen for what they were. Uh, for what they were. So, uh, you know, uh, the. Uh, You know, the spotlight goes back and forth. Uh, We'll all remember George Bush looked pretty good when he landed on that aircraft carrier and got out wearing that flight suit and uh, walked up and there was a big sign that said, Mission Accomplished. But in the end... uh, it didn't make any difference. It it becomes just a footnote uh, to the presidency, and uh, I think that's generally the way it always is. Well, I want to thank all of you on behalf of TCU and the Schieffer School of Journalism, my colleagues David Gregory and George Stephanopoulos. I really appreciate you coming today, and thank you all for coming.